Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm Liz. We are business owners turned podcasters. This show gives you the permission and tools to create your courageous second act. We call this the Afterglow. Welcome to the Afterglow. Rachel Giza is an award-winning journalist and the editorial director of Extra, the world's oldest LGBTQIA media organization. Her book, Boys, What It Means to Become a Man, was named one of the Globe and Mail's 100 favorite books of 2018, and also won the 25,000 Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for political writing. For four years, Rachel's weekly column on politics, pop culture, and feminism appeared in Chatelaine, where she was the editor-at-large. She is also a regular contributor to CBC Radio and the Globe and Mail. She was the deputy editor of The Grid, an internationally recognized news weekly, and a senior editor at The Walrus. She has also taught journalism at Ryerson University and University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs. She lives in Toronto with her wife and son. Rachel, welcome to the Afterglow. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here too. We're so excited about this conversation today because there's actually so much to talk about, right? Our show is dedicated to helping women overcome sort of the boxes that they've been conditioned into, right? From a societal standpoint, the elevated box is typically the straight white male. And here you are, an intelligent, accomplished, brave woman in a same-sex marriage with an adopted Indigenous son. I mean, there's so much to explore here. But also, we were thinking so much to fight for from a diversity and equality point of view. So how do you balance all of this in your personal life and in your activism without being drowned by it or feeling overwhelmed? Mm, that's such a good question. And um, I appreciate that you um, imagine that I'm not drowning in it at times, <laughs> that I'm not overwhelmed, mm. um, because I think like so many people uh, right now, um, uh, the world feels very overwhelming and the challenges that we are facing, people who, um, people who are equity seeking in their work, um, uh, people who uh, care about the environment, uh, care about racial justice, care about justice for LGBTQ2S folks. Um, you know, th these last few months, everything has felt urgent. Every, every issue has, has been demanding um, our attention. Um, I think for me, the way that um, I think about it in my, in my work and in my day-to-day -day is about small steps, is about um, having a bigger overarching goal that's part of my work and, you know, places where I have power to make change. Um, so uh, you mentioned that I'm the editorial director at Extra, uh, an LGBTQ publication. Um, so one of the things that I can do in my day-to-day -day work is think about whose voices are missing. Um, does the publication reflect uh, the, broad, um, the broad experience of my community? Um, are, we, are we creating opportunities? So are we, do we have a diversity of voices represented? Um, what are our hiring practices? Um, are we covering the communities we cover with dignity? Um, so that's sort of the broader overarching goal that I work with with my team every day. 
Um, but each day I also think about what is one small action that takes me closer to that goal? What is, what is one, and, and I think more broadly in the rest of my life, I, I work with an organization called Media Girlfriends. And uh, likewise, we're a, we're a um, sort of a network of friends and colleagues. Uh, we were founded by the CBC broadcaster, uh, Manaba Duncan, um, and, uh, you know, we seek to amplify women's voices in media, particularly women of color. Um, and so, again, that's a big overarching goal. And then what can I do each day? What small thing can I do to, um, you know, uh, share a piece of information, um, pass along a reference, um, um, read more deeply so my understanding increases? Um, because if I try to take it, all on, I would get paralyzed. And I, and I have been, I have felt so overwhelmed to the point of not being able to move forward. So I think it's about carving off one small action or activity, and then those actions and activities can lead up to something really big, right? At the end of it, you realize that um, you've made a much greater change because you've taken all these smaller steps to get there. Mm -hmm. Everything you just said, Julie and I, we own a yoga studio when we're doing this philosophy training with a professor of philosophy at York University. And he basically told us about Ahimsa, this principle of non-harming. And he, he basically said, just always do better, you know? And I think that's a nice way of, of you are basically following that same philosophy. If you take on too much at once, it's, it's overwhelming. It sounds like your overwhelming, your overriding goal or purpose is to elevate voices, to give diverse voices a chance to be heard. And your background is in feminist work. And so, you know, starting originally with the, the female voice, um, and then you quickly transition to elevating a voice or giving, you know, raising awareness of a voice that we don't often think about as being overlooked. And that's boys. And so tell us about that transition there and the work you do with boys. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I often say that I spent, you know, the first part of my career uh, focused on issues of gender equality and ending gender-based violence um, and creating more spaces and room for, you know, women and girls and I think also, um, and also, you know, people who are non-binary to take up more space in the world, to, to have more agency and more power, to have more opportunities. And, um, you know, looking at the mechanisms that have been put in place to stop that from happening and how do we dismantle that? How do we recognize it? How do we dismantle it? Um, and how do we center voices? How do, how do we reframe the world so the default experience of the world is not sort of a white, straight, English language speaking, um, you know, um, middle class and above, uh, you know, cis, hetero, male. Mm -hmm. And um, then my wife and I adopted our son who is Ochi Cree. And he is also a person with learning disabilities. Uh, he's learning disabled. And, um, and that was, he's, he's 17 now. So we adopted him when he was one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my framework about, uh, about the world shifted um, uh, in part because as the mother of a son, I mean, I think as a parent in general, I, I don't know if the two of you are parents as well, but when you have a child, uh, people make a lot of assumptions about who your child is based on what they believe your child's gender is. So they see your child and they will tell you if they believe your child to be girl, a girl, they will tell you your child is pretty or sweet or nice, or they'll talk about her hair or her cute shoes or whatever it is. 
if they believe your child to be a boy, they will say, oh, he's so strong or so tough, or he always gets messy, doesn't he? And just sort of seeing very early on the assumptions about who, and I want to be clear, these, aren't, these weren't things that I felt people were being cruel or unkind, but they were just the kind of knee-jerk responses, the kind of unexamined thinking. Um, and we certainly got that with our son on a lot of fronts. Our son, um, in many ways, uh, meets all the, the sort of gender norm expectations of, of boys. Um, he's very sporty, um, he's tall, he's got broad shoulders, always a lot of energy. But I sort of could see the way that what got overlooked was his tenderness and sensitivity. So mm -hmm. when people remarked about who he was in the world, they imagined a trajectory for him, not only based on his gender, but also his identity as an indigenous person in ways that were limited. And um, so I applied the same thinking that I had applied to gender equity and gender equality for girls and women and non-binary folks to boys and men and began to examine what are the biases that we have in place about how boys and men are expected to be? And how do those biases and expectations contribute to gender norms for men and boys that are harmful to themselves and harmful to other people? So when we say that boys uh, need to be strong and aggressive, so what kind of behavior does that lead to down the road? When we say that boys and men should never express their emotions or the only emotions they should express are anger or sexual desire. What does that allow them to be down the road? Um, when we say that black boys are something and Asian boys are another thing and white boys are something, something else, what, 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 what does that mean when people look at those, those young men? What, what do they hope for them? What do they expect from them and how do they treat them? And um, that led me down this really interesting path of, of thinking about gender expectations um, uh, and, and the limitations that they, that they place on boys and men. And also to me that the work of feminism is not only about girls and women, but unless we change the attitudes that shape men and boys' behavior, um, we are still going to have violence against women and girls. We are still going to have discrimination that, that we have to, we have to heal the whole and we have mm -hmm. to change the whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's like years of studies, there's years of protests, you know, years of like feminist, you know, marches and books written and yet people don't seem to understand the extent of the toxicity that exists with the rules around what it means to become a man, right? Um, in preparing to write your book, I've read that you, you did your research, you are a mother to a boy, right? So that kind of, I think, gives you a leg up right there. Um, I have two boys and Liz has one. So um, you, you kind of get it, right? Just from experiencing that. Um, and how old, are your, how old are your boys? So I have an 18 year old and a 12 year old. Okay. And Liz also has a 12 year old. And did you see that mechanism at work um, throughout your, like that people sort of made assumptions about, about who your boys would be or what they would be like very quickly? Or did you get a lot of, oh, he must like this or he must hate that? Did, was that your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I have an 18 year old, like you have a 17 year old. So, so they're men now. Right. And so I'm constantly faced with this idea that did I do enough? Did I do my job? Is he well enough sort of versed to be able to make his own choices on what side he wants to take and which 
role he wants to play. And, you know, I am coming at it from a place of like feminism um, and not as much from the place that I think you positioned in your book, the boys, what it means to become a man, um, which is a very compassionate um, take. And so I really, I've, I'm grateful for you for writing this book because it, it, it drew a light on, you know, how I parented up until this point to try and get my son to be a feminist along with me and to take my side and to take care of women and all that, as opposed to having that compassion that he is in a world that has been created for him already. So he's going to constantly be fighting against this, right? And so... Um, you know, with your, with your research, with everything that you've done, psychologists, sociologists, you know, you, you mentioned, or it has been mentioned that you um, research in boys only sex education classes, which I think is brilliant, you know, obviously, um, you know, researching recreational sports leagues, all of that. So in mentioning that we have boys, like, can boys at some point be set free of this, of their own limiting beliefs? Like, what are, Maybe, maybe you want to tell us what are maybe some of the main points that you have identified as being most toxic to them and how that shapes them and, and what are the tendencies that come out of that? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think is, um, that, I, that I came to understand by talking to the people that I, that I spoke to and um, in, in sort of looking at, you know, spaces where boys were encouraged to be their whole selves, um, to also talk about um, sexism, to talk about gender inequality, was that one of the most damaging things I think can, that can happen to boys and young men is cutting them off from their own vulnerability. Um, so early on, the kind of boys don't cry, toughen up, be a real man, grow a pair, that kind of, that kind of messaging. Um, because what happens is um, either, they can sh either they shut down emotionally, they cut themselves off from, from you know, uh, the full range of human emotions, um, and they become closed down people. They can also become very angry people. They can also become very bitter and resentful that their needs aren't tended to. Um, I think a lot of what we see in movements like the incel movement, you know, with um, uh, uh, the movement of, you know, uh, young men who refer to themselves as involuntary celibates. These are young men who feel like they're not getting the girl, that, that they're not the alpha males. Um, there was sort of incel um, ideology um, behind, um, the, the man, the young man who drove the van up Young Street in 2018, um, uh, there was a sort of a resentment of, you know, he, he, as a male, he should be entitled to all of these things and he didn't get them. So I think part of that is when you cut off somebody's vulnerability very early on, they don't have avenues to express their feelings around rejection, which is something we all feel, right? But I think when you combine rejection with a kind of a toxic male culture of entitlement, what you have is not a young man learning to accept what happens when his heart gets broken or when he wants something and doesn't get it, which is the human experience. We all don't have to deal with disappointment. But if you are told, if it, but if you have your feelings shut off and also you have this expectation that the world owes you something and you don't get it, what you see is this kind of radical, this radicalization. Um, the other thing that can happen when you shut down vulnerability and tenderness is you can, um, 
you can cut off empathy in boys and young men. It becomes very hard to feel empathy for others if you don't feel like your needs are being heard. If you don't feel like you're seen and looked after, it's very hard then to build empathy for others. Um, so I think when it comes to mental health issues, preventing male violence, and also giving uh, boys and young men the skills to be good partners, good friends, uh, good parents, good uncles, um, the ability to be vulnerable, the ability to be vulnerable without um, feeling shame when you're vulnerable um, is, is, I think, one of the most important things that, that we can do. I think protecting boys and young men's um, tenderness <laughs> um, is important. Um, and at the same time, by that, I don't mean coddling them and saying that their needs supersede everyone else's. I mean, giving them a healthy sense of um, it's okay to hurt, it's okay to fail, it's okay to fall down, um, and this is the path you take. So not you're never allowed to fail, you're never allowed to be sad, but rather it's okay to have these feelings. And here are a bunch of healthy methods to contend with these hard feelings. So it's not everything that happens to you is the most important thing. Rather, it's okay to have these feelings. This is how you deal with it. And then this is how you extend that same empathy and care to others. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, that's probably if I had one takeaway that I'd want from the work that I did, it's that I think that's the key to so much. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, there's implications what you're saying, there's implications both for the boy who grows into a man, right, that emotional disconnect with themselves. And so someone who's emotionally stunted and not able to feel their own emotions or, or extend care to others through that empathy. And then someone decided, well, these are the people we should put into power to make decisions in the world. And so that, you know, lack of being able to have empathy and then that that power. Um, you know, it, it leads to the things like you were saying that the, the uh, radicalization and you talked a bit about the incel movement, but I've also heard you speak about um, the white nationalist movement and how movements like that know how to prey on boys like this who are who, who have been raised in this toxic masculinity. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. And there's um... Uh, I also want to recommend uh, the work of Kevin Roos. He's a writer for the New York Times and he covers digital culture. He's done a lot of work around QAnon and other sort of conspiracy theory groups. Um, but he's done some really interesting research and talked to some researchers who look at the way um, that algorithms work on, um, work on places like YouTube. Um, and this is going to get like, bear with me. <laughs> there, there's a point to this. But the way in which you can see the way that white nationalist groups, incel groups, um, uh, sort of, you know, radicalizing groups, particularly of, of, of white, white boys, um, they can start with something really innocuous, like um, um, a, a Twitch channel or a YouTube channel about a video game that's popular. And so they start talking about the video game and then they kind of plant some seeds for some ideas in it. Or maybe it's about bodybuilding or, um, you know, maybe it's about music. And, um, and these, these groups are very good at knowing how to um, sort of, well, first of all, the way that the algorithm, algorithms work on places like, um, like YouTube is they, they, they begin to feed people stuff. And you can actually see in sort of in searches, mm -hmm. um, and this is something similar that Kevin Roos has done, where a person who might be searching, asking some questions, suddenly is getting um, recommended stuff that becomes increasingly radical. So it's very easy to be seduced and pulled in by this material. 
Um, and I think this is because, you know, YouTube's only goal is to have more eyeballs longer. So, you know, they say that they don't, they don't have a morality, but in, in, not, in not paying attention to that, they end up, you know, you end up seeing a lot of hatred flourishing on those platforms. And likewise, in a lot of chat rooms, it used to be 4chan or 8chan or, you know, whatever the, you know, the, um, uh, whatever the platform um, du jour is, um, these groups are very, very good at preying on boys who are lonely and questioning. So, you know, a boy might come on into a Reddit group or um, maybe not Reddit anymore because they've, they've, they've done some good work in cleaning up their act, but might go into a forum and say, you know what, I'm reading this book by Jordan Peterson. And he says that men are meant to be the hunters and the gatherers and women are meant to be the nurturers. So I think that means men are superior, right? So something that a 12 year old might just sort of put out, mm -hmm. not in a really hostile way, but kind of trying to figure it out. And then people will begin to be like, oh, here and feeding more information. And if you think about, you know, a boy or a young man who doesn't have a lot of friendships, maybe is awkward in the world, um, um, they're fairly easy to spot on these platforms and be somewhat groomed to, um, to these movements where they find a place of connection, where they find a place of self-esteem. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the men I spoke to in writing my book who um, works with an organization called Wise Guys, which is based out of Calgary that does a lot of really amazing work with boys and young men, said, you know, if we don't create spaces for boys to ask some of these questions, to talk through some of these issues, even if they're kind of sticky and uncomfortable, someone else will answer those questions for them. And we don't want those people answering the questions, you know? So, um, you know, there, there are lots of, there, there are lots of um, paths that a boy might go from sort of you know, kind of questioning some things about about racial justice or gender or, or gender justice and find himself on a path towards a nationalist thinking, white nationalist thinking or, um, you know, male supremacist thinking. It's such a scary thing to think about. Like, I'm actually feeling a little bit sick to my stomach hearing you talk about how I mean, quickly and easily, all of this can happen, right? We talk, we learn about, you know, sex trafficking and, and pornography on the internet and, and that kind of thing and how easy it is for people to get a hold of you. But this is something that I think I haven't even thought about before. Mm -hmm. right? I hadn't even thought about that this is potentially happening in our world. And it, it's really scary to me. Mm -hmm. um, and you're talking about, you know, how this then turns into potential violence and behaviors against women. We had uh, Jeff Pereira on our show, who is an, a big advocate for boys and men, and um, he talks about the ladder to manhood and how like climbing the rungs of the ladder is like this honorary rite of passage. And it, but each rung includes these, again, toxic ideas of like the pressure to succeed, the pressure to be the best, and then you are the strongest and then you're the fastest and, you know, you present no weakness and you're better than a woman and, and um, you know, in your book, you talk about the man box. And so um, how, how most boys are trapped in this um, societal realm about feeling emotion, which you just talked about. But what we, we don't understand is that the more deeply these men are climbing the ladder to manhood or are embedded in this, this man box, the more likely they are to, um, you've, you've said, binge drink, have unprotected sex, prone to violence and depression, and so what are the, what's the research on that? Like what, what, 
what can you tell us about what's really happening here? Is it the, the, the missing of the empathy? Is it the, 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 all, the loneliness that already exists? Is it, you know, the, the, the conditioning that has already been happening in their lives? Like where, what gets you to a place of being a young boy to like, you know, let's say domestic violence? Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think it's all of that that you mentioned. I think that, um, you know, lots of, you know, you know, there's, there's a, a, a debate or lots of conversations about the nature nurture question. And, you know, I think that they work in concert. I tend to lean more on the nurture side in terms of the determining factor, or at the very least, I think that we have a lot of power in how we organize our society to create change that there may well be, you know, people talk about violence, for instance, people will say, well, boys have more testosterone and testosterone is this, or, you know, the aggression is natural. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard when we're such social creatures, it is really hard to parse how, how much of us is innate and how much of us is shaped by our environment. Because of course, you know, um, uh, human beings are in constant social contact, con- contact mm-hmm. with one another. We are born into a particular environment where we learn language, we learn uh, faith practices, we learn uh, social interactions. I mean, everything is taught. We don't, we don't come out of the womb speaking, talking, having a set of values. Those are all sort of put on us. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to issues around violence, I think that there certainly are ways to disrupt to um to circumvent um impulsive behavior for instance or um you know aggression that exists within boys and girls uh, both and um and and i think that that is looking at um you know what is what is valued in our society what is valued in what is valued in our culture um And I, and, and so I think when we think about the steps of, you know, what could take a child into being somebody who is uh, physically abusive, say, I think part of it is some, in some cases they were physically abused themselves. In some case, um, boys and young men um, experience violence. And that, that is something that we don't often talk about Um, when it comes to sexual violence, for instance, the the statistics are around one in six. Uh, boys and young men have have experienced some form of of unwanted sexual uh, uh, contact. So that could be um, being touched, being being molested, being raped. So you know th- there there are a lot of boys and young men who have experienced harm um, and have been unable because of all kinds of stigma not to talk about it. Um, the other is that in lots of all male environments like teams, like fraternities. Um, uh, all boys schools, there is um, kind of a, um, it's, 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 it's almost like a, a homosocial behavior that comes in to stop homosexuality. So when you throw a bunch of boys together because of the stigma against being gay, um, they have to prove that they're not gay. So every sign of affection then has to be matched with a punch on the shoulder or something like that. And often you see in those all male environments, very elaborate hazing rituals um, to become one of the group, to become one of the circle. And often they're quite violent. I mean, we saw this happened um, at St. Michael's uh, mm-hmm. School here in Toronto, where a bunch of older boys had bullied, and, and it, it seemed to be some, in some cases part of a hazing ritual, um, other kids, other boys in the school. Um, 
I think the other is that, um, again, when you cut off boys and men from um, healthy emotional outlets, um, and then combine that with a world that tells them they're at the center of the universe and they should have what they want, when they want it, how they want it, um, physical violence can ensue. They feel entitled to that anger, entitled to that control over a girl or woman's body, attention, um, whatever, whatever it is. So I think all of those things combine to lead to, lead to, to, to violence. Um, and I also feel very optimistic that we can change the trajectory of violence. Um, so mm. I don't think, I mean, this is why I think I get frustrated sometimes with the, the hardcore biological folks, because if you, if you believe the argument that boys are inherently aggressive or men are inherently violent, well then where do we go when it comes to talking mm -hmm. about domestic violence or sexual assault? If that's just how they're built, then there's no room to change. And, um, and I don't agree with that. I think that I, I know men who have turned away from violence. I know men who are gentle and kind. I know men who have been violent in the past and have changed. Um, and so I think I feel very hopeful about the possibility of interrupting those cycles. Mm. I love that you live in hope. And, um, you know, I think that's really harmful, right? When you tell people that they are a certain way, then they will meet those expectations. You know, um, if you tell people they are bad, they will do bad things. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And, and um, but yet I'm still, you know, I have a, a personal friend who's going through a hard time and she has two children and they know about this hard time. The daughter is reaching out to her friends, talking to her friends. The son, age 12, is withdrawing, not talking to anybody. And so this is 2020 and already, you know, we're still, we're still seeing that same pattern repeat itself. And I'm not blaming the mother. It's, it's conditioning and society is all of that. And so how, how do we actually change? How do we nurture different boys, a new mm -hmm. world? How do we do it? Um, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, how we model it. So I think as women, we have a role with the boys and young men in our life to make sure, you know, whatever connection we have with boys and young men to use an emotional vocabulary with them that's as broad as the emotional vocabulary we use with girls. You know, there's been mm -hmm. some studies to indicate that from a very early age, uh, girls are taught a wider range of how to describe their emotions whereas boys get a smaller vocabulary that's sort of you know given to them so i think thinking about the language we use when boys are really young um to say you know if they talk about how they're feeling what does that feel like and oh it sounds like you're disappointed or it sounds like maybe you're a little disappointed and a little mad but a little relieved and you know kind of allowing them to have um an emotional terrain to encourage them to think about their emotional terrain as something varied um, I think the other is there's a really important role for uh, men in the lives of boys to show the full range of their emotions, to show uh, tenderness, to show failure, to show mm -hmm. sadness, to show disappointment and grief, um, to show disappointment, um, um, to show humility, um, to apologize. I mean, so I think part of it is seeing that, um, that modeled. Um, and I think it's, uh, and I think it's also like, this is really fighting against a tide. Like when this came up earlier that, um, you know, it's hard for folks, you know, boys get, boys still get rewarded for the man box. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so even though there's all kinds of studies pointing to the way that it's killing them <laughs> to be in the man box, 
it's still really valued. And I think in the same way that lots of white people right now are thinking about what it means to be a white person having privilege, and what does it really look like, not just to pay lip service to being a person of privilege, but to materially think about what you might need to give up, change, what it means to be quiet instead of talking, what it means to um, you know, give up power, what it means to um, reframe your thinking about the world. I think this is the project that, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of men uh, need to be engaging in and kind of showing their work <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to boys and to young men. This is the process of unlearning um, these masculinity rules. This is the process of of what it's, I mean, in some ways we're asking boys to be more courageous than we're asking a lot of adult men to be. Mm. Um, you know, I've watched in alarm a lot of the stories coming out of um, COVID in heterosexual couples where um, women are scrambling to take on extra domestic labor, extra care for the kids, homeschooling, and their male partners are not stepping up. Um, and I don't think that all of those guys are horrible. And I have lots of male friends who are, you know, they're, they're scrambling their way through it and are really good and equal partners. But there's been enough information to show us now that this, that the, the weight, the domestic weight of this virus and what it means is landing on women. Men need to step up because their sons, their nephews um, need to see them stepping into the domestic realm and being supporters. So I think that's the other part of it too, is, is showing it. And then the last thing I'll say on the hopeful front, because um, I think I am a bit of a, I don't think I'm a Pollyanna, but I do, I, I think I am an optimistic person, is that boys are yearning for these conversations. Um, they might not know how to get there, but I guarantee you um, that the boy you talked about who is watching his mother scramble, I guarantee you there is a part of him who is that is trying to figure out a way to talk about it, that is trying to figure out a way to grapple with these emotions. And it might take him a while, he might need to be given permission a hundred times over, but the boys that I kept getting told were shut down. If when I started talking to boys, they were waiting for someone to ask them. Mm -hmm. And again, it might not come, it might take time to build that mm -hmm. trust. Um, but over and over again, I heard from young men that they wanted to have meaningful relationships. They wanted to have deep friendships. Um, they wanted to have space for their emotions. And anybody I know who works with boys in a meaningful way will tell you that this is, that they are not cut off um, they are gated, you know, that they've been, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I think it's, it's up to adults to help give them the courage to go against what they've been taught by the world. I love the research that you've done in actually speaking to young boys and finding out from the source, what is it that they want and what is it that they need and that young boys are actually capable of expressing themselves to say, I want more space. I want to feel deeper, right? Because they've been cut off from this for so long. So in your research, you, you, as I mentioned, you um, did a lot of work in the, the boy only sex education program. So what role does sex education play into this man box concept? A huge role. I mean, uh, I think sex education is fascinating. And my book really started with a story I wrote about this sex ed program called Wise Guys based out of Calgary, which 
you know, I think continues to be one of the most innovative things I'd seen. And the way that they thought about it, it was, it was a program that came out of, um, I think it's called Calgary Sex Sexual Health. The name has changed, but it's similar to like a Planned Parenthood. It's a, it's a community sexual health program. And what they realized was that in the 30 years of operation, they had lots of programs targeting, um, you know, women, uh, LGBTQ2S folks, but they'd never had a program specifically targeting young men. And they sort of like, hmm, what's that about? Why, why have we not thought that sex education is important? And so they created this group called Wise Guys, which is open to boys, anybody who identifies as a boy. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think there's complicated things about segregating something by sex in some ways because not everybody falls into a binary. Um, but for this purpose, it was, I think it makes sense for most of the boys that they serve. And how they teach sex ed to these boys is over a course of a year. And it ties sex education, like the actual mechanics, the sort of the, the plumbing and the putting on a condom, like that part of it is very small. Most of the course is about figuring out what your values are, uh, learning good communication skills, uh, uh, talking about um, bias, um, talking about discrimination, talking about equity, uh, doing a lot of role play about negotiation and sharing, um, and also just creating a space for boys to be. And, um, you know, so, so in thinking about sex ed and even thinking about something like consent, um, I think it's great that a lot of colleges and universities now are implementing consent programs. I also think it's about 18 years too late by the time boys get there. Mm -hmm. Because I think that sex is complex and it's filled with a lot of tender feelings and um, shame or vulnerability, like all this stuff, right? Um, and I think we need to early on give kids the building blocks to get to uh, get to the ability to talk about sex and a consent approach. So I think we need to start early on about talking about bodies and pleasure um, and what feels good and what doesn't from, from a very early age. I think we need to talk to kids about, um, like what I mentioned earlier, rejection. So talking to kids really early on about, you might have a crush on somebody um, and they might not have a crush back on you and helping kids figure out what that might be like to have their heart broken or be disappointed, right? Like building those skills really early um, and talking to boys, not just about sex, but also about love and affection. Mm -hmm. Because I think the narrative we have for boys, particularly straight boys, is that boys are always horny. They're always turned on. They just want sex. They're, um, they're not, you know, they're, they're not romantic. They're kind of doofuses. And that's not a lot of the boys that I, I mean, I certainly have come across those kind of boys, but I heard from people who are sex educators who would say what they hear from boys a lot that, that we don't sort of have as part of the mainstream thinking about boys is boys would say things like, I really want to know how to be a good boyfriend. What is it like to be a good boyfriend? Or they would say, you know what, I'm actually, I actually don't know that I'm ready to have sex. So how do I tell this girl that I'm interested in that I really like her, but I'm scared to have sex right now? Or what if I don't measure up? What if I have sex with this girl and, and my penis isn't big enough, or I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm, I'm really bad at it? Um, and, you know, those aren't, that isn't, like that, that to me is not in, in, indicative of somebody who's got all this swagger. That's indicative of somebody who's vulnerable and uncertain. And, and I think, you know, doesn't want to get hurt, right? Doesn't mm -hmm. want to look stupid, doesn't want to get hurt. So I think with sex ed and boys, it's about creating space to give them good information, good sexual knowledge, because 
In fact, boys don't actually get good sexual health knowledge in the way that girls do. Um, you know, there's been some studies showing that when a girl goes to see her family doctor when she's in her teen years, she will often be asked about contraception and she'll be asked about, about sex, be told about STIs and pregnancy. Boys don't really get that same kind of um, uh, check-in with their doctor. So part of it is to give them really good prop, proper sexual health information. And the other is to talk about sex in the language of affection, pleasure, respect, love. Um, talking, talking to boys, um, you know, and straight boys in particular here about female pleasure, I think mm. is probably one of the most radical mm. things we could do. Because I think so much of our culture around sexuality centers male pleasure. And, mm -hmm. and I think if what all boys are taught is that sex is about mutual pleasure, and if it's not mutual, mutually lovely, mutually fun, mutually fulfilling, then that's not good sex. Mm -hmm. But if we say to boys, it's good sex because you had a good time, that's something that puts them on a particular path, right? Mm -hmm. That could change so much i mean what you it, it brings me to one of the questions i i have because so much of the work you've done recently around boys has been about helping to erase the man box or or just raise awareness of the man box anyways and that is a feminist issue when you think of how um you know toxic masculinity can can harm women can harm uh, other people um but since you started in feminist issues i'm curious about you know the women box and if you still see women as being put in a box and and the pleasure you know that definitely seems to be something that we're not allowed to have in that box so where do you see the the women box right now for sure i mean one of the things that i think in particular is um i think that because we're in this stage of flux i think that um uh, i think women and girls are still struggling with you know, stepping into this new expanded definition of, 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 of sort of a broader sense of what it means to be a woman um, um, and embracing qualities that are, um, you know, traditionally seen as male qualities. I don't think any quality is a male or female one, but the ones that have been traditionally assigned as male qualities. So things like ambition, um, things like bravery and strength and, you know, all of those things. Um, I think that a lot of women still experience a lot of ambition, a lot of ambivalence and a lot of guilt when they do. So, you know, and I was talking earlier about the impact of COVID on a lot of family dynamics. Um, I think that, I think that there are a lot of women that I know who are, you know, have ambitions about their work or, or their studies or something beyond the domestic and yet feel a lot of guilt when they're not focused on the domestic. And I think can sometimes find it hard to let go of control in that area for fear of, look, for fear of looking like a failure. So I think that one of the women box things that a lot of women can get trapped into is feeling, and I'm sort of speaking more in a straight, I mean, I don't wanna, I just, I just think it's, it's sort of, I think the dynamic becomes, it's, it exists for all women, but I think the dynamic becomes a lot clearer in, in opposite sex couplings, where I think a woman will at once feel resentful mm -hmm. about, about her partner not stepping in and doing more, but then at the other time, perhaps will find it hard to let go control. Oh my God, 100%, 100%. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's fair, yeah. <laughs> Martyr, <Yes>. major <laughs> martyrdom. Yeah, which I, it's taken a while to uh, unpack and let go, but yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. And so I think it can, because, and it's not because I think that these women are being control freaks, but I think it's like, if you're told that your value as a woman is mm -hmm. in having a perfect home and cooking the meals mm -hmm. and having your kids look and dress and be a certain way, mm -hmm. if you cede some of that to your partner who may do things differently, um, it can be hard to let that go because what if you don't live up to these high, high standards, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's a place where women can still find themselves in a particular kind of, kind of box. And I think the other is, you know, one of the things that I'm very conscious of in this time that, you know, a few friends of mine who are very involved in, um, body positivity and body activism have pointed out, um, in this is, is the way in which, uh, a, a part of, of, of women's culture, female culture, um, can still be, even amongst very strong feminist women, can still be wrapped up in certain standards of beauty. And mm -hmm. so I don't know if you two have heard this. I've certainly heard it from, you know, people talking about, oh, COVID, I've gained so much weight or I can't fit into these pants anymore. And I think that, you know, again, I don't think that these comments often come from a, a place of intending to hurt others. But I do think like, what is, what is the cumulative effect of a bunch of women talking about how this terrible thing has happened? They've gained 15 pounds, you know? What does it say to fat women? What does it say to the world about our value? What does it say about our values in general that, you know, like the West Coast is burning and we're worried about whether or not our pants button up, right? And I don't mean to be dismissive because again, I think we're trapped in a world that says our value as women is totally tied up in how we look. That is mm -hmm. still a real thing. Mm -hmm. And I would just always encourage, and myself included, when I, when I be, to try to be conscious of when I add to that noise, when I add mm -hmm. to that, when I, when I say something, even in just a toss off way that, um, you know, helps to confirm or sort of confirm that idea that that is our value, that, that being skinny, that looking young, um, that, um, you know, having a certain kind of clothes is, is better than the opposite. So I think that's another box that I think is, is so easy to step into. And I don't say this in a, I'm so much better than that because I fall into it all the time, but that's something that I, that I'm trying to be mindful of. So will, will you correct yourself? Because I have, I do catch myself saying things too, where I'm like, that, that doesn't align with my values anymore, you know? And, and so will you, will you say that? Like if you did it in front of your son or will you say, oh, you know, well, I'm not sure why I said that, or that was my old conditioning and that's yeah. not what I believe anymore, you know? Yeah, I mean, I will for sure. I mean, I think I will, uh, or often it's more that it's a thought that happens in my head and it's mm -hmm. like, huh. Or mm -hmm. even just thinking about, you know, the way that we're all on Instagram or something and just being like, oh, I'm wearing my leggings today, um, mm -hmm. you know, and because the old one, you know, whatever doesn't fit, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, wait, I, I, it's about me, but that self-deprecation is going out in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and the harm it does to me to, mm -hmm. uh, to say my value is in this. Mm -hmm. um, and then what it says to other people, because I'm sure that we've also, because I've been on the receiving end of somebody mm -hmm. making a comment like that, that I know is just about them. They're not saying mm -hmm. anything about me, but when I hear somebody say, oh, I've gained 10 pounds, I think, mm -hmm. oh God, am, am I bad? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? And so you realize that there are these little acts of harm that are not intended, 
but we participate in them because we're still in the woman box, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's like, how do we have compassion and empathy for ourselves as we're in this process? And then how do we try to correct correct ourselves or go Mm -hmm. back and, you know, try to put something out that's, um, uh, you know, a bit kinder at a time when I think the world for all of us feels hard harder Mm -hmm. than it's felt for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of goes back to um, the word ahimsa that Liz mentioned at the beginning, which is, you know, not harming, doing less harm. And so without even knowing it, when we talk negatively about ourselves, we're doing harm to ourselves. But as you mentioned, it's, it's getting out there into the world. So we're continuously, you know, um, exacerbating or aggravating the pattern of harming without even knowing. And so there's, there is so much, unlearning and work that needs to be done and there are so many issues that you know we've even brought up and talked about today through you know the boys um and the the gender issues and um the um even human rights right now like particularly with you know um, black lives matter and and it is very difficult not to get so overwhelmed um and so we're, we're so grateful that you have written this book and that you are here to discuss the gender issues um, with us today, but we also don't want to gloss over your own personal experience as a gay woman. And, you know, Liz and I don't know what that experience is. And so what is it like um, presently for a gay woman in Canada? What is your experience like? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a really, you know, mixed experience, you know, I'm someone with a lot of privilege in my identity, you know, I'm, I'm white, I'm middle class, I'm in middle age, um, you know, I am, you know, straight passing. Um, um, so I'm not somebody when I go into like my, my partner who is much more masculine presenting when she goes into a woman's washroom will often get hassled or assume mm-hmm. that she's in the wrong place or, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I think that, I think for some lesbians, queer women, um, uh, you know, the laws have changed in Canada to um, uh, give us a full slate of civil rights. So in many ways, there are a lot of us who are pretty fine or pretty comfortable. And then there's a lot of us who, because of intersecting identities, um, are struggling with, um, you know, police brutality um, or exclusion based on based on race because you because they're a, a you know a queer woman of color, um, a black or indigenous queer woman, a, um, a trans woman. So I think that I think that. Um, you know, the, it's like the extension of rights or the liberation is um, still unfinished. Um, mm. You know, some of us were able, were able to find a degree of security and safety. I also live in downtown Toronto. And um, so visibility here is very different than it is in a, small, a, smaller, um, a smaller location. Um, you know, I would say that um, I get to be to a certain, like in certain aspects of my life, somewhat oblivious. And then in other aspects, I still don't, you know, I still don't feel like I see a lot of queer love stories in popular culture. I still don't see myself um, and my experiences reflected um, um, much in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say that, that is what's, that is what's different. Again, I think 
when I think about um, the younger generation, when I think about, you know, millennials and Gen Z, and particularly because of where I work, um, you know, most of my team are, you know, a good 10 to 15 or 20 years in some cases younger than me. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, they're, they're beautiful, you know, they're, they're expanding and challenging ideas around, um, you know, uh, any of the rules around, uh, you know, there, that there is this, this quite, uh, I mean, we are seeing both the, the fierce um, opposition, say, to trans folks and non-binary people right now, a high degree of violence. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing a really thriving um, movement of activism, of arts and culture, of expression, um, of visibility that's really, really powerful. And I think that um, there is an evolution um, of the next generation that I think is much more open and kind, um, um, much more, um, you know, and, and I think that I hope that this is, this is not always cyclical. Like I, I, I was born in 1969, so I grew up in the 70s when there was this kind of like free to be you and me period of, you know, boys can have dolls and dads can cook and moms can work. And I think we're in a moment right now of a lot of um, gender essentialism again. I think we're seeing like a lot of public figures who talk a lot about, you know, gender and biology. Um, and we're seeing a lot of clamping down of uh, LGBT people in parts of the world like Poland uh, right now mm-hmm. is a hotspot mm-hmm. and, and, and many other places in the world. Um, you know, my personal life in, in Toronto, Canada is uh, a relatively comfortable one but you know my experience as a queer woman is a very small slice of queer woman's experience Mm. are you are you a spiritual person yeah yeah i am i mean i have a i have a bit of a a complex relationship i grew up catholic and Me too. I, yeah, and I, I was involved in a fundamentalist Christian church when I was a teenager. And then I actually lived on an ashram. Um, I lived wow. at the Kripalu Center when it was still an ashram. Mm-hmm. And um, that was another place that, like so many, um, so many sad stories coming out of um, the yoga community where there was um, sexual abuse and uh, happening at the top level there. Um, so I think that I've had an experience of maybe more organized experiences around faith and spirituality that were more oppressive or duplicitous. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I meditate and I practice yoga, and um, you know I think my spirituality is is one of um, maybe formally agnostic, but I believe in connectedness, mm-hmm. um, and I believe in a higher in a higher purpose for mm-hmm. all of us. Um, I believe a lot in, um, you know, I'm kind of awestruck by nature. I'm kind of awestruck um, by the complexity of our brains and our bodies. Um, so I think that's sort of where my spirituality lies. Because I think it's that, that belief in connectedness that gets us past the, are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you gay? Are you straight? Are you black? Are you white? Like it's, it's seeing the connectedness beyond all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I was wondering if that was part of, you know, the work that drives you and also the hope that lives in you. Um, it, um, I, I said, we need something to hang on to, to get, to see past all the chaos, you know, uh, yeah. and to live in hope. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a, an acquaintance of mine put something on Twitter the other day and said, you know, it was, a, it was a bad day. I don't know what had happened, but it was a bad day and in the world and said, you know, what's giving you hope. And um, I sort of feel, and this is maybe going to sound judgmental. I don't mean it to be, but I sort of feel that it's a, you know, if you can't feel hopeful, uh, like there are people every day showing up and doing work that I'm mm -hmm. awestruck by, you know, mm -hmm. my, my, my partner works in at a, at a foundation and they do a lot of work around decent work and supporting workers. And so of course this moment when so many people have been laid off and the work is so precarious, um, it's, you know, she's been really, really busy, but you know, every day she's in contact with people who are, uh, working with migrant workers to help them have more agency and power and make sure that their health is okay and mm -hmm. to um, help them organize. Um, likewise with, you know, domestic workers and, you know, and on and on it goes. And I think, you know, every day people are showing up in some, some small way to, you know, volunteer at a food bank or help precarious workers unionize or, um, you know, whatever it is, whatever, you know, the, you know, showing up in ways to um, uh, educate and advocate, uh, advocate around, be an advocate around climate change that mm -hmm. um, I think that's like, to me, I am so moved by that kind of dedication of people who show up and care. And, you know, we saw so many signs of it here in Toronto where, you know, people going and getting groceries for a neighbor who couldn't leave, people forming um, communities of care, people drawing on something in themselves that I'm not even sure that they were aware that they had to be better, gentler, kinder, more generous. And I think that's where that, that if I had a spirituality, it's sort of that like, you can't, you don't wait for a miracle because they're happening all the time. Every time somebody shows up in kindness with another person, every time someone you know, um, fights and stands up and says, this is unjust. Mm -hmm. um, that like every day that, that you see that, right. And you can, you can pay attention to the crisis and you can pay attention to the cruelty or you can be like, what's that? Like, what is that energy? And how do I, how do I, how do I help that light shine brighter? How do I take some of that light and shine it here? So I think that that's what I, you know, that's kind of, um, you know, to get back to kind of the beginning, it's like sort of what I hold on to and what I believe in and what underpins my work. It's that it's like, I'm the people I spoke to for my work, um, humbled me, humbled me with their care. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and that, you know, and I sort of feel like, oh, that's what a, what a great model. Mm. We need to, um, we need to highlight those moments of hope and mm -hmm. miracles and magic more than what we see every day and I'm bombarded with in the news, right? All the negativity. And so I'm uh, in awe of your hope uh, and all the work that you have done in, you know, even parenting, mothering um, and writing and continuing to be this um, advocate and activist. And so we ask the question, um, what is your afterglow on our show? And by that, we mean, you know, what is your next chapter? What do you have hope for? Or what do you see for yourself in the next 40, 50 years? And so um, what is your afterglow? I, for me, and this is something that, you know, I, again, is talking about the small, the, you know, the small things we can do. But I think one of the opportunities we have in this moment 
um, where um, on so many fronts, uh, when we start talking about essential workers and what is essential work, and we're paying attention to the folks whose work is often undervalued, people who work mm -hmm. at grocery stores, people who pick up our garbage, deliver our mail, and how do we ensure that that work is safe and decent and, and properly paid? Um, you know, so I think it's like, so there's that, that, that can, we, can we alter that way of thinking permanently? Um, you know, the, 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 the folks of color, the black and indigenous people who are leading movements of racial equality and racial justice right now. And we've seen in the last six months, a, 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 a shift in thinking from, you know, we couldn't possibly dis defund the police to now all kinds of folks thinking, huh, do we need to fund the police that much? And what does it mean to have police in prisons? So people who never would have questioned these, these things are now beginning to think about it and read up on it and study it. Um, I think about what it means for so many people to live with less, to think about this moment of such enormous upheaval, to think about building something not back to where we were, but something better. And so when I think mm -hmm. about my, the question is sort of what the afterglow is, is I want to I wanna hold on to the possibilities of change in this moment and educate myself more on not going back to what we had, which didn't work for so many people, but to actually reimagine in my own life, in my work, in the institutions that I'm a part of, um, what would a really equal, equitable and just society look like? What would that look like in terms of how we pay people, how we care for, um, our, our children and our elderly. Um, um, I, I, that's, that's what I think that the next chapter um, for all of us needs to be. And I think for mm -hmm. me, it's figuring out, you know, my little teeny tiny place in these bigger questions. What, mm -hmm. what small thing can I do to affect um, a, a, a reordering of things that is more fair and, and more right and leaves all of us healthier, less precarious, um, um, you know, safe, uh, loved, um, mm -hmm. protected. That's, that's beautiful. It's, um, I, I do, I, I also feel the same that this is a chance for us to evolve into a better version of ourselves rather than going back to where we were. And, um, you know, I do think that COVID has given us a lesson around, you know, all this, even social distancing or washing hands, like everybody matters, right? In building this new world. It's, it's not one person, it's all of us doing, as you just said, like little things every day to make the world better. That's what gets us there. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so you mentioned meditation. Are there other things that you do just to continue to trust yourself in a world that is, you know, you said going against the wave that is putting um, backward pressure on that, you know, this really just standing up for your values and being yourself and raising your voice so eloquently in work and in the work that you do. How, how do you sustain that against this, you know, this system? Um, part of it is something that is really, that is really a work in progress for me is, um, you know, part of my work involves me, you know, being on screens all day long. Um, but I'm aware that this is not the, always the healthiest place to be. So trying to be thoughtful about, you know, um, what I take in, right? So to think about, mm, is social media serving my, me right now? Mm -hmm. Am I engaging with Instagram, Twitter, Facebook in a way to connect, in a way to learn, or is it a way to 
experience some kind of schadenfreude or show off or, you know, so part of it is just that, like something as small mm -hmm. as that. Um, the other is um, getting out in nature every day. I think, you know, I think I'm not alone. I think so many folks um, have uh, really turned in this moment to uh, finding ways to be in the natural world and, and, and re-engaging if we weren't already engaged in the natural world, mm -hmm. re-engaging in the natural world. So shutting down our screens, you know, we're so lucky to live near a beautiful lake. So I walk um, on the boardwalk in the beaches um, every morning. And that has been a way to um, bring me back to myself and to, you know, um, there's something about that open space that kind of expands mm -hmm. the thinking, but also quiets things down so I can be in touch with myself. Um, and uh, it also helps me not feel quite as um, pulled this way and that way, because again, things are so overwhelming right now and the ability to have an opinion, to express it, to put it out there is wonderfully really big right now but it also means that we can be bombarded by stuff mm -hmm. and i think sometimes it's hard to know who you are um you know if you are always pulling you know i think i think there's there's one thing to sit down with a book and really educate yourself about an issue you're unfamiliar with there's another to, to look up from facebook and realize you've been on facebook for three hours um experiencing like just the gamut of emotions <laughs> about things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thinking, mm, that's not that's not um, deep and healing. That is, mm -hmm. you know, that's stirring up my um, mm -hmm. uh, my nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about kind of trying to find quiet when I can find it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing all this wisdom with us. Um, your book, Boys: What It Means to Become a Man, is really, um, I think, an important read for all people, but all mothers in particular, um, I found it so, um, you know, it was changing. Like I mentioned at the beginning, it, uh, we, are, we are focused really on helping women um, to thrive and survive and break free of their limitations. And this just shines a light and, and really helps um, bring compassion to boys and to men. And so um, thank you for writing it. And, and we'll definitely um, do a little link to it at the bottom of this. Thanks. Where can we find you? Um, you can find me on, after I just said, don't go on I know, social media, I know. just yeah. go on social media to find me. Um, you can find me on uh, social media at Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L-A Giza, G-I-E-S-E, -E, um, is probably the best place to find me there and on Instagram. And I also have a website, rachel-giza.com. You can find stuff about me there. Amazing. I, I love the thought leadership you're coming coming out with. And I love your hope for team human. I, I love it. It really shines <laughs> through. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you. I really appreciated your time. It was so it was really, really lovely to speak to the both of you. Was, I'm so glad we were able to connect. And thank you so much. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Afterglow Podcast Official and take a minute to leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Lift a sister up and share the afterglow with others who are seeking their courageous second act.